As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Neil Renison, current creative director at Tin Man Games, so join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Neil. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Not bad. <laughs> a bit busy, but I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, no worries. Thanks for having me. So this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from all around the world about their, their stories through the games industry so far. And Neil, you're, you're uh, working a few different roles these days. You've got a nice lengthy history. You've been in a few different uh, places. But before we get to all of that, we're going to go right back to square one. What was your first gaming experience that you recall? Uh, the first experience. Yeah, so was there, do you have a first game that you recall off the top of your head? Oh, what, that I ever played? Yeah, um, your, your playing experiences. Oh my gosh. Um, so the first home, the first game I ever played that I saw in somebody's house, because up to that point I was just in arcades playing on Pac-Man and Space Invaders, was yep. a friend of mine, or a friend of a brother's of mine, uh, had uh, a ZX Spectrum and had a game called Attic Attack, which was by Ultimate Play the Game, who later became Rare, uh, incidentally. And, yeah, I was going to uh, say, that, that all sounded very familiar. Yeah, so and that was the first... I remember seeing the colours of the ZX Spectrum. I know they only had a few, but, uh, oh my gosh, it was on running on a television, and it was bright and colourful, and I wasn't in an arcade. I, I didn't have to put 10 pence into an arcade machine. I could just kind of, like, press zero to play a game, and there it was. It was amazing. What a novel concept, not having to pop the money in the arcade. I know. Well, at least for the amazing. time it would have been. It, it used to take 10 minutes to load the game, but, you know, you, you can't beggars can't be choosers. So. Exactly. I'm not having to pay up, so I guess it offsets <laughs> that nicely. Uh, so how did things kind of develop from there? What other sorts of games would you, uh, would you play through those early years? You know, the sorts of things, I guess, informed where we might be these days. Yeah, so it's a combination of things, really. So um, back then... Uh, so I, I remember getting a ZX Spectrum, and for many years I, I, I used to play on my ZX Spectrum. Most of even I even learned a bit of basic programming and did some coding of my own games. I um, used to play a lot of games like Elite, um, the original Elite oh, yeah. on my Spectrum. Um, I used to play a ton of text adventure games like The Hobbit, um, uh, which actually made here in Melbourne. Uh, here I am, many years later, working as a games developer in Melbourne, which is kind of cool. Um, Small world. It is indeed, um, but the I guess one of the things that was really informed where I am now is um, we used to have uh, like uh, fantasy choose your own adventure books called the Fighting Fantasy series, and um, they were kind of like solo Dungeons and Dragons, and um, yeah, that was my my go to because obviously adventure games on home computers back then were pretty crude. Um, but uh, in a fighting fantasy book it was more like a, a story where you got to choose the path and you got to roll dice and create a character and you had abilities and an inventory and all those kinds of things and also it was portable gaming because obviously I couldn't take my home computer and my television uh, on holiday with me so if, you know, if we were going on a long holiday somewhere I'd have the fighting fantasy books and some dice and pencils in the back of the car and that was my, my Game Boy I guess of the time um, yeah, and yeah, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about, Fight Fantasy kind of informed quite a lot of my career later on. So it's kind of seminal for me. Yeah, so I will be quite curious to see how that and some of the others, I guess, uh, dropped in and informed some of the work down the line. Uh, but, I mean, I suppose you've in some ways just discussed it. Was, it. was there a particular game at all that you feel like really put you on the path to become a developer? Was there Was there a game or was it? that particular example we just discussed that really clicked with you and thought hey I, I want to make games not really because back then I mean I was I knew from very early on that I was never going to be a programmer I wasn't very good at maths at school um, it was one of my weaker subjects and whenever I did programming uh, I, I always I got to a certain point and then I would struggle and so and I was always an artist I loved drawing I loved painting I loved making things um, but on a home computer, on a ZX Spectrum, um, unless you're a programmer, you couldn't really do much in terms of art. Um, 
And so it was a little bit limiting for me. So I never really thought to myself, oh, I'm never going to make these because I'm never going to be able to do programming. And then uh, I got a, an Amiga 500. And Amiga 500 came with a thing called Deluxe Paint 2 uh, and, a, and a thing called a mouse. And I was able to move the mouse around the screen and create art. <laughs> um, and I wrote, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the big film at the time on the cinema. And I remember just being on my Amiga and I just drew Roger Rabbit over and over again in Deluxe Paint. And then I was able to animate Roger Rabbit in Deluxe Paint. And all of a sudden I suddenly realized that I could use a computer to make art. And, and that, that was a kind of the, the, the opening in my brain, I think. To, to a potential life in this area so yeah yeah i suppose yeah with the technology the way it was yeah it would certainly for a, for a fair while feel like the only way you could get in is with those programming skills but uh yeah as i was doing a bit of research into into some of your history i did see that yeah art, uh, artistry was certainly um the basis for a lot of your early work uh so hearing that doesn't necessarily surprise me too much yeah yeah i mean it's it was you know, it, it was it was the gateway drug, I suppose, for me, um, and, it, and it led on to everything else. Were there other careers or anything like that that you'd consider considered pursuing over the journey? Was there anything that was really, the, I don't know, I guess the ultimate path that you've chosen, was there something that was kind of pulling you another way? Oh, well, absolutely. And in fact, I went to university and I didn't study anything to do with video games. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, okay. I, I went to university and I did um, engineering to start with and then I did, which is weird considering I was so bad at maths at school, um, and then I did product design, um, which is like industrial design, um, and did that. And uh, before that, when I was in secondary school, I was really good at languages and I was doing French and German and uh, I think there was talk of me wanting to be a translator or, you know, do something like that. But um, but yeah, I ended up wanting to go the design side and I ended up doing this product design degree at university. And um, yeah, and then the, as part of the product design degree, I had to do um, 3D CAD because 3D CAD was the, the new big thing in the sort of early 90s. AutoCAD had been the king up to that point, sort of 2D layouts for engineering drawings, but now you could turn them into 3D. And um yeah, and the 3D CAD taught me about 3D modeling, and uh, yeah, again, another another little entryway into the rest of my career, really. Yeah, I guess the, it's strange how these things all kind of end up coming together and working out perfectly. Yeah, so, you just kind of fall into it, it's brilliant. Yeah, so um, as we start to move towards the career itself, uh, where did where did things begin? I've got a little list of different studios here, but in case I've uh, missed something along the way, um, mm. where, where did the journey first begin and what sort of games were you working on and in what capacity? Uh, so I graduated from university and um, I, uh, I got a job at a multimedia company doing animations in 3D Studio Max. Um, I taught myself 3D Studio Max because we didn't learn it on our course. And, um, yeah. and I was doing like educational CD-ROMs. Um, I was building like historical reconstructions of things like I remember building a Roman latrine for example and animating oh, okay. how a Roman latrine works for a piece of history software um, and then uh, I got made redundant uh, after about 18 months um, sadly because they were struggling and uh, I applied for a job in Oxford in the UK at a company called Razorworks who were making racing games and um, uh, that was my, I guess my first official games job. Um, part of the, the invitation was that they were going to teach me how to use Maya. Maya was the new, the new hot software to learn. Um, so I just bit the hands off. Um, I'd actually done, I had a friend who was working for an architectural uh, visualization company and they had designed a, uh, a new building for Silverstone Racetrack. And as a bit of freelance on the side, before I'd taken that job, I'd, I'd done a 3D recreation in 3D Studio Max of that building. And I still to this okay. day believe that my interview for that first job, which was basically building racetracks for race games, uh, I showed them this building from Silverstone and they went, oh, Silverstone's going to be in our game. And, uh, and Silverstone's just up the road from Oxford, incidentally, as well. It's only like about 45 minutes up the road. And so I spent the next year of my life building Silverstone and traveling to Silverstone lots and watching the Formula One testing and people like David Coulthard racing around and stuff like that. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool. So that was kind of my first step into video games. Yeah, very fortuitous that you'd already been working on that sort of thing and that's exactly what they required. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of funny. 
Um, now, just for my own clarification, and maybe also for our listeners, uh, Maya, that you were talking about, that, that's a modelling tool, am I right? Yeah, modelling animation. A, mo- a modelling piece of software, tool. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, um, it used to be called Alias Wavefront, and then it, it got turned into Maya. It was, it, was it was the software that was used by a lot of the, um, the movie industries of the time, and then um, started sort of to migrate in the early 90s into video games. Um, and so some of the titles in that period that you uh, that you were there, we're talking uh, Ford Racing 2 and 3, <laughs> Total Immersion Racing, is that right? Yeah, Total Immersion Racing was the first one, and then the Ford Racings followed, yeah, yeah. So it was, um, and I, I kind of worked my way, I was there for three years, and I kind of became a senior artist and, and all that kind of jazz, so I kind of worked my way up a bit. <laughs> now, as far as guests for this uh, series are concerned, I, you tick off a few firsts uh, throughout the course of this, and we'll, we'll get to a few of those other ones later. But following your time at Razorworks, you went on to go work at Exeunt, is that correct? Or uh, I did. Exeunt. Yeah, and I did some freelance on, for them. Yeah, and you worked on SSX Out of Bounds, which the not necessarily um, anything major on its own, but uh, in terms of the the first that I'm talking about here, it's you're the first person I've had that's worked on an N-Gage game, and that's really <laughs> awesome. I've worked on three actually. Yeah, <laughs> but you're the first person I've spoken to who has, and that really quite impresses me a little bit. So, what was it like developing for the N-Gage? Oh, it was a nightmare, mate. <laughs> I've I've heard like stories over the over the journey, but I've never yeah never had an opportunity um, to chat to someone about it. That was a really interesting time. So I, I left Razorworks by my own accord, and I went freelance. And um, and uh, a friend of mine had just got a job at Axiom as a programmer, and recommend and had heard on the grapevine that they were struggling with some art stuff. Um, they were a three D Studio Max company, um, and obviously I'd used three D Studio Max and and Maya by then and so um, I I literally went into the interview and I said what's the problem they said oh we've got these assets from electronic arts these big mountains and we need to get crunch these PlayStation 2 assets down into like engage and we're really str- our art team is really struggling to do this so um, uh, they said can you help and I just I said get me a computer and I literally sat there in my interview and I showed them the best way I thought they should do it <laughs> and they literally offered me the job there and then, because <laughs> um, it's you know Working to get, out to get <laughs> yeah. Well, the, um, the, um, the 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 files are all built in Maya, and all the all the the, the mountains are all built out of NURBS surfaces. So it wasn't even polygonal geometry. Um, they were obviously doing some funky thing in their their three D engine for that game. Um, but obviously, the N-Gage needed polygons, so I had to. I spent basically the next six months poly-optimizing mountains, rocks, snow, you name it, trees. Like that was my job for six months, and I did it for about eight or nine mountain slopes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was it was fun times, <laughs> and has its own challenges too. Uh, yes, yeah, and the engage is pretty rubbish in that it, 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 the way it renders objects is it, it doesn't have an order in the way things are drawn. So uh, in my, most modern three D software, you have like a culling. So if there's an object that's in front of another object, it, it recognizes the depth and it will render that object before that object. The engage wasn't so powerful, so you had to have everything. Nothing could sit behind anything else, otherwise it would pop through the scenery. And if you can imagine uh, a mountain slope, which takes three minutes to get from top to bottom, that's yep. pe- peppered with rocks. And in the version that I had, all those rocks just intersected with the, the mountain because they didn't need to worry about that. But yeah, I had to stitch every vertex from every rock into the snow landscape. And uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting Fun, from time. the sounds of it. Ah, oh, quality <laughs> time of my life. <laughs> I charge um, them for it, though. <laughs> oh, good, good. So, yeah, you were talking about how you were doing some freelance work there. So, Exeunt wasn't the only uh, studio you were doing that with. Uh, there's Pocketeers, there's IdeaWorks, yeah, and yeah. Juice Games over the course of a few years. Yeah, so the, the guy that ran Exeunt at the time, um, I'd heard he, he had some friends that were also working. They were working on a Nintendo uh, DS version of Need for Speed Underground 2 um, and recommended me for that because I was only freelance at Exeunt. And so I ended up doing Need for Speed Underground 2 on Nintendo DS, which was really exciting. 
Um, and then from there, I, I got wind that Idea Works um, in London were also working on a mobile phone version of Need for Speed Underground 2. So I contacted them and said, hey, I've just done the DS version. They went, right, you're hired. Uh, I then did like Most Wanted. And then my career had this weird Need for Speed angle. For the next three or four years, I was basically making Need for Speed games for various different studios. And weirdly, back at Exeunt at one point, built doing Need for Speed for them, because <laughs> they managed to pick up the license too from Electronic Arts for the um, for a, a couple of DS versions and a, uh, uh, a PS2 and a Wii version. And so I ended up managing a lot of the art pipeline, building a lot of the racetracks for those games too. So yeah, it, it, Need for Speed followed me around like a bad smell for a while. Yeah, I was going to say, like as I was kind of pouring through the, the list of games that you've contributed to uh there was a lot of racing games uh along the way so it seemed like you'd found a bit of a neat whether you necessarily wanted that to be the case or not you'd certainly found a bit of a niche over those years yeah and then much of it on my own making i would literally go and find out which studios in the uk were working on racing games and i would contact them and say look i'm the guy that did this um and in a lot of the cases a lot of the games i made racing games i was actually in charge of the art teams and i would actually put the art teams together um because you need quite a big art pipeline to sort of develop lots of different um, racetracks for a game. And yeah. I became really good at it. Like, it just became what I was good at. And if you'd have asked the Neil from 10-year-old Neil, um, who hated motorsport, I was never into cars, that he would become, like, the leading track guy in the UK during a, a certain period. And, you know, <laughs> he wouldn't have believed Young it. Neil would have laughed at you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I was never a petrol head at all, so. But they weren't uh, they weren't the only games you worked on. I, I saw in the list there was some Tiger Woods titles there. There's, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, some so- uh, like Soccer Champs. There's uh, and obviously a mixture of different platforms as well. Uh, I see The Sims on there for iPhone. Um, so you still got to spread your wings a little bit with a variety of different sorts of games. Yeah. So what would happen was usually I'd, I'd be freelancing at these studios remotely and sometimes working in house. And, you know, they, they, they had other projects on. And so I would just hop into those projects for a month or two if I needed to. Um, so Tiger Woods is a good example. They were doing a, I think it was, a, oh, do you know, I can't even remember what platform it was. I think it was a PSP version. And, yeah, uh, if Tiger we're talking Woods Tiger Golf, Woods, I can say PSP, PS2, iPhone is what I'm seeing here in your little list. Uh, yeah, this is me trolling right. through your LinkedIn, <laughs> I might add. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, and I was, I just kind of, you know, building a race, uh, a racetrack and a golf course, they're, they're not a million miles away from each other, so the, the techniques that you need to do one another are, are pretty similar. Um, so yeah, I'll just fall into one thing to another. And in the case of The Sims, that was really interesting because I moved to Melbourne, leaving my kind of like need for speed days behind me in the UK. And then I found out a Melbourne studio was making need for speed undercover for um, iPhone. <laughs> so I contacted them and said, hey, I'm the need for speed guy from the UK that's done all the kind of like DS and phone ports and whatever and so I ended up working for them and they were also working on the sims so I ended up jumping in and doing some sims work for them as well so you don't just think there was someone from EA that was just tailing you everywhere right I, I don't know I don't know it's very <laughs> bizarre it's very bizarre because it is strange how they followed you halfway across the world I know it's, it's very very odd I just keep finding myself in uh, but I, 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 I think after that one I then worked on Need for Speed the Run for 3DS um, yep for a company in Scotland, in Glasgow. And I vowed, after I finished that gig, I vowed that was the last ever racing game I would ever work on. And it was, <laughs> so. Okay, good, because uh, it's allowed you to kind of spread your wings and work on some different stuff over recent years, which is also, there's there's also a fairly fairly lengthy, lengthy list there. But um, how does uh, and again this was as I was kind of picking through your your LinkedIn here how does uh, Fraction Studios kind of fit into that mix because we've obviously rattled off a whole bunch of different studios so far and you've you've done some freelancing work from for them but how does uh, Fraction Studios kind of link in with that so Fraction really was an extension of my freelance so what would happen was um, very early on in my freelancing I would go to a studio I would start working with the art team and the programming team and developing a pipeline and then the boss of the company would come to me and say hey we need some people to do x or we need more artists to do y do you know anybody and i'd recommend them because obviously i've been around a bit by that point and i knew a few people 
And yeah. I thought, wait a second, this is silly. I could be making money out of this. Um, so I actually started a company in the UK and I actually brought on a couple of freelance artists and I went and round and basically got more work. And as I worked, I pulled them in. And then if I needed more people, I pulled them in. Um, there were some teams. At one point, I had a team, uh, an Indian outsource team working for me. <laughs> in, oh, yeah, okay. And, you know, I basically, I just, I used my reputation um, of being the guy to go to to do these racing games and, and kind of just went in with a, look, I'll, I'll sort it all out for you. You don't even need to worry about it, which from a, somebody running a company is like music to their ears because they don't have to pay salaries and they don't have to hire people or do interviews. They just give Neil a call and Neil turns up with this, you know, vagabond group of artists and we just get on with it, do what they need to do in four months and then disappear off again. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, it kind of worked for a while. <laughs> it was good fun. Yeah, and how did you manage, because, uh, you know, towards the end of that time uh, working in that capacity, you were also starting to get uh, the work going with Tin Man Games. Yeah. How did you manage to kind of straddle both? Because there is, from what I can gather, a little period of crossover there between you working with Tin Man and doing your Fraction Studios work. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, Tin Man started because I'd made about 20 grand profit, uh, Australian, yeah. um, off a few projects. And I basically used that money to start Tin Man. When I moved to Australia, I was like, right, I'm just going to use that money and start my own indie company. Uh, and very quickly, I realized that I needed a bit more money than that. And so I had to carry on doing a bit of contracting. And so I went back to you know, my, all my contacts and said, look, I'm still available to do work. Um, so I, I worked on a few projects remotely from uh, Melbourne for a couple of years. Uh, and so I would do a bit of contracting and then I would do a bit of my own stuff with Tin Man and slowly get that up and running. And then it got to a point where I didn't want to do, I, like I said, I didn't want to make racing games anymore. And I, I decided that was my last one. There was enough money in the bank. I'd found a really great um, business partner um, who was a, an amazing programmer called Ben Britton. And he decided, he was contracting at the time, he decided to give up contracting. I gave up contracting and then we just jumped straight in and just did Tin Man full time. So that's kind of how it started. So uh, obviously at that point, it would be nice and refreshing to be getting out of the driving game space. And you didn't really take the foot off the gas though. There's, there's a lengthy list of uh, titles that you've worked on over the journey. And the one that really struck me the most is just how, um, how frequent I see the name Game Book Adventures appearing in that list. Um, there's, oh, there have to be about a dozen different titles that I can see. Um, have, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Game Book Adventures games and, and how they came to be? Yeah, so I, as I mentioned earlier on, there was these game books when I was a kid called Fighting Fantasy. Um, and the iPhone had just come out and I thought to myself, oh, they'd be awesome on, a, on an iPhone, like rolling dice. And, and so I contacted, yeah. I found through some mutual friends, I've, I've contacted the original license owners of, of Fighting Fantasy, Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson. And they just sold the license to a company in Canada. So... There was no way I was getting my hands on the Fight Fancy license to make those. So I thought, well, I'm gonna do my own. <laughs> so so I was writing a game book of my, my own at the time called The Siege of the Necromancer, just in my spare time. And I suddenly went onto the internet, found a, a very dark corner of Yahoo groups and found a load of these kind of like 30 something guys who were writing their own sort of choice-based adventure game books. Um, and sharing with each other and I just reached out to them and said hey who wants to join me on this crazy adventure I can't pay you much money but I'll write a thing and you can get publishers and, and it'll be fun and it'll be fun and so they did and um, yeah that then became the 12 series 12 title series that you mentioned um, one of the interesting things about that was um, we needed a world to set all these stories in and so uh, I, I was back in the UK on a trip and I went up to my parents' loft space and I found a big old box, which was my old Dungeons and Dragons box. So I used to run a D&D &D session at school and I designed yeah. this world when I was 15. And uh, yeah, that became the world for Game Book Adventures. <laughs> so, 
Um, oh, look, it's fantastic how those those kind of seemingly small ideas when you're a child can kind of come back and, or when you're younger anyway, uh, can come back and actually become a fully fleshed out entity of their own. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, uh, it was what was really amazing about that time was that I had all these really talented writing writers working with me who were basically fleshing out my world that I'd created when I was a kid and and they were making it way more interesting than I ever would have. And um, oh, I was just really, it was really beautiful. I, I loved Gamebook Adventures. I was very proud of it. Um, so yeah, I'd love to bring them back again one day. Well, he's hoping that might be the case. <laughs> we'll see. Um, the the list of completed games is is quite long and like I said there's uh, game book adventures in there and things kind of culminate I guess most recently with uh, Table of Tales but are there any other games that you developed uh, that you've developed in your time at uh, Tin Man that have really really resonated with you that you've really that you can be really really proud of and I'm sure you're proud of all of all of the games that you've worked on but are there any that uh, just sit a little bit higher in that pecking order? Oh look, when we got the Fighting Fantasy license. Um, uh, and that would have been a thrill oh well I was literally (laughs) so I was in the UK at at an RPG convention called Dragon Meet in London giving out postcards I used to go to RPG conventions and give out game book adventures postcards and um, I was there I was stood at this little table um, and I suddenly heard this this guy say hello Neil and I turned around and it was Ian Livingston who was obviously my hero as a kid because he'd written the fighting fantasy series um, and he said, look, I'm writing a new fight fantasy book for the 30th anniversary called Blood of the Zombies. He said, uh, the company in Canada that we've, that we've had, they don't have the license for that. Would you like to publish it as an app? <laughs> I was just like, ah, uh, okay. Um, and that's... After you stopped you know, fanning out <laughs> in the first place. Indeed. Um, and that was really special. And then the Canadian company decided not to follow up with the license. So we got the license for all of the, the series. And uh, yeah, a few months later, I was in Ian Livingston's kitchen you know chatting to him about you know while his wife made me a cup of tea and we were talking about you know what we were going to do for the app so it was all very weird um so i was very proud of that because like you know that's that's proper like going back to your childhood and meeting your heroes and working with your heroes and yeah and is that still the sort of thing now on on reflection does that still weed you out a little bit that that actually was a thing that happened because it's not, it's yeah, not often it that I guess that people really get to meet their heroes and interact with their heroes or or um, role models in that sort of capacity. So I'd imagine that would still be the sort of thing that even now, you know, pops up in the back of your head like, yeah, I did that. What yeah, the hell? it does. <laughs> it's 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 really quite um, yeah. Like it's been some time now since that moment, but even now I'm 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 still chuffed to bits like uh, that I did that and. You know, I still get, you know, obviously I speak to Ian and Steve all the time because um, we still do bits and bobs with them. And, you know, it, it's funny now because I speak to them in a functional way. I'm sending them spreadsheets of sales reports or, or you know, contract, like if we're renegotiating a contract or something that it's just like legal jargon in an email. It's really very boring. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's never what you would have imagined when you were young. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, they've been very supportive of Tin Man Games, both of them. Um uh, so you know, I, I, I'd like to think that you know we've helped their brand and they've helped mine, and it's been you know it's been great over the years. So as I said before, things have most recently culminated with Table of Tales, the uh, the Crooked Crown, um, and that's and this is another one of those firsts that I was talking about. For you're the first person I've had on the show that has worked on a VR game of any sort. Um, oh yeah. Firstly. I think it's probably important that we actually talk about what Table of Tales is before we launch into the VR aspect of things. Uh, so maybe you'd like to quickly just tell our listeners what Table of Tales is for any of those who are unaware. Yes, Table of Tales. Oh my gosh, um, this feels very recent now. After talking about all this old stuff, uh, so Table of Tales is uh, basically the pitch to Sony um, was what would happen if you took the movie Jumanji. And you mixed it with Dungeons and Dragons, and you threw it into VR. Um, so basically, it's a virtual reality experience where you're playing a tabletop RPG with miniatures and dice. Uh, the difference being that instead of using graph paper and little miniatures and having a dungeon master in front of you, um, you have a talking mechanical bird that's the dungeon master that flies around the room, walking at you and talking to you. 
and the table itself comes to life and does all the mapping for you, so it actually creates the environments. Um, so, so yeah, so you're you're kind of interacting with this magical table that sort of brings the D and D adventure to life. It was it was a really cool premise. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Ben McKenzie uh, last year, who who worked was he was if I was right, he was writing for the game. Was that is yeah, that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben's yeah. an amazing fella. Yeah, I, I met him last. Like, I'm as all the listeners know by now, and I feel like I do this in every bloody episode. But I'm a teacher by profession, mm. and he actually came um, in a speaking role to our school. And he, at one point, like, I'm I'm just sitting there, kind of half supervising for a while there, doing doing my teacher job, and then all of a sudden, I heard him say something about working on games, and my ears just pricked right up, and I kind of almost forgot about the job there for a while. <laughs> but um, that's actually ha- like him like, having a chat with him afterwards. Um, that was what first actually brought um you know caught my attention when it came to the game um and i did a little bit of research after that and i was really quite impressed and it's i've messed around with it a little bit um uh since since it came out i picked up a psvr at launch when it came out in 2016 big big fan of the technology and what it's trying to do there and and yeah what you created with uh with uh table of tales was really quite fantastic but i was really interested to know how developing for vr affects the way you're creating the games because it's a whole other sort of technology it's not what we're so used to as either uh consumers or what it would be for developers it's a whole other uh playing ground i guess really that you're on so what how does that affect the development process ah boy oh boy uh a lot and we didn't realize (laughs) that (laughs) we didn't realize it at all um it's 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 very interesting you can't i can't what what's the way the best way to describe it you can't hide anything with vr because uh you know it's this first person you're in the world um a lot of video games will sometimes like especially older video games you'll you'll you know there'll be a seam and you the camera won't be able to turn a certain way because you know they don't want you to see the that there's a big hole there because they can't the the PlayStation 2 or whatever it's running on can't actually draw that many triangles on the screen so they they do sneaky tricks where the camera just doesn't show you areas um, I mean I've still I've still heard about tricks in the the modern day I think it was <laughs> yeah, probably uh, Horizon Zero Dawn if I recall where <laughs> Gorilla were talking about how they only basically rendered the cone that was in front of you and everything else outside of it was completely black and it only yeah, you know, load as you swivel the camera so <laughs> yeah. those sort of tricks still still exist yeah you can't but how does the that problem with vr you you can't get away with that the other thing with vr is you're effectively rendering two screens because you've got one for your one eye and one for the other eye um so you've got rendering overhead which is a lot higher um uh and you know the psvr is a great bit of kit don't get me wrong but it's not the most powerful of the vr systems out there so um yes it was it was a really interesting experience um and you know, optimizing and keeping things running at a good speed was vitally important. While also getting the quality of the visuals in the way that we finally got them, which I'm—I mean, that table when it comes to life, you'll have seen it. The, the it it moves around like it's water. Oh, it's, it's just yeah. It's very fluid, yeah. I, and yeah. I'm glad you said yeah, water because yeah, the first word that did spring to mind was fluid. It, it looks it looks great as things kind of shifting around there and. Yeah, I mean, that's credit down to the team. We, we worked with a really great team of developers here in Melbourne called Samurai Punk. Um, the, it, was, it was a bit of a collaboration on the tech side. Um, they've got some very talented programmers. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just, uh, you know, uh, just really hard work to make that work well. And everybody that worked on it actually knocked it out of the park. But we did, we did bite off way more than we could chew, I must admit. And, uh, you know the game we overran ran on the game development time by a significant amount <laughs> um but yeah in okay. the end, it was worth it because the the quality of the game i think really stands out i think it speaks you know. for itself yeah 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 like, i'm super proud of it it's the best thing we've ever made like it's it's a, it's a thing a thing of wonder and i think it's 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 one of those things that i don't think that's been done before um not in that way anyway um 
So I'd like to hope that we're, Table of Tales will be one of those pivotal stepping stones, which it's not being recognised much now, but in future will, people will look back on it and go, God, that game there, geez, that was ahead of its time. Um, yeah. Fingers crossed in that regard. Um, and yeah, you speak about working with uh, Samurai Punk there. I'm sure like listeners of the show will be familiar with Samurai Punk. They seem to pop up in a few... We've had a few people that have worked in the arcade like like you do mention them over the journey we had dan draper come on the show a few months back oh, uh, so samurai punk seemed to be uh featuring fairly prominently with a lot of different people that we're talking about so yeah they do some fantastic work and i'm glad to hear they're working alongside you there for table of tales yeah it was really they were super important because when when i was pitching the the, the game to sony in the first place we needed a tech demo and at the time my tech team were finishing up on the warlock of firetop mountain which was our sort of 3D version yeah. of a Final Fantasy book. And um, so they sort of stepped in and created this amazing demo, which was part of the pitch to Sony. And that's the thing that got us across the line. And then when it came to the actual like, right, let's make this thing now, it was a no brainer. It was like, well, you're in it now. <laughs> you're in it for the long haul. Uh, so um, yeah, that's good. A great team. Do you see yourself, obviously you, you did say you felt, feel like you've been off a bit more than you could chew, but do you see yourself returning to VR? Is that something now that you've now that you've gone through that whole process and you've come out the other side uh, Do you and put out a really good product in the process, do you feel like um, returning to VR anytime soon? Uh, well, I can tell you we're not doing it for a game that we're currently working on, that's for sure. Um, whether we do it again in the future, um, I would love to. I think VR is amazing. Um, uh, it's a difficult one. Um, Got to have the I, uh, the project that necessarily matches it. It has to have a project, but it also has to have the finance in place to match it because you know, yeah, VR headsets they're not as common as other forms of gaming technology. Um, yes, so it's. You know, and, and Table of Tales itself is a niche game, and it's in a niche market, so it's a niche of a niche, really. So, it's it, it's a tricky one. I, I I wouldn't spend my own money at, the, at this moment in time developing a VR game, but um, yeah, I understand. But, but I think there is um, there is merits to um, uh, carry on, you know, developing in this medium because I think it's it's definitely got legs. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Things change very quickly in this industry, so who knows? Absolutely. So, short version is, I guess, uh, just the, a few stars need to align in the in the short term to see if something like that will ever happen. Yeah, and you know, look, even you know, we, you know, it's that thing where we could be working on a game, and because we've got the VR experience, we could turn that game into a VR experience um, pretty easily if we wanted to, or we felt it worked that way. So. Um. um so tin man's not the only thing that you're you're doing these days though so there's also uh steel sky productions and warhammer underworlds online that you're you're <laughs> juggling as well <laughs> oh yes plus well, plus our... this unannounced title that you're talking about with tin man but this yeah is, uh, warhammer. Is, uh, yeah well so warhammer uh, so just to, to be plain steel sky productions basically is an extension of tin man in many ways um it's a kind of new development arm of Tin Man um, that's working solely oh, okay. on the Warhammer Underworlds online game. So that technically is our game that we're working on at the moment. Um, oh, right, okay. So yes, so we, it's kind of a natural evolution for us um, to carry on the sort of digital board game space. And um, yeah, we've been working, uh, yeah, I pitched for this game quite about 18 months ago now, something like that. So it's been, been on the boil for a while um, and we're releasing it later this year but it's again as VR was for Table of Tales a new area for us to venture into and so is Warhammer Underworlds it's an online multiplayer um, live ops game <laughs> which we've never done before so it's all going to be fun uh, we're having to learn a lot um, very quickly um, you're not afraid of a challenge that's for sure oh what just 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 keep going have fun it's great <laughs> life life's short and all that sort of stuff well, I'm always the yeah. You just got. I'm surrounded by so many talented people that do amazing things, and I just want to hang out with them and make cool stuff. Right? That's it's and yeah, yeah. So we just we just keep on going. It's it's brilliant. I mean, Warhammer Underworlds is a great board game, and I'm so 
so incredibly proud that we're able to sign that. And um, and the game itself at the moment is just looking beautiful and playing beautiful. It's uh, it's yeah, it's really really good. Um, and I've got really high hopes for it. Um, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, the team are knocking it out of the park at the moment. It's amazing. Glad to hear it. Um, obviously, we've spoken a lot about your development work so far, but you're also doing a bit of fle- freelance writing for a while there. Uh, so for the likes of 3D World, PC Format, and PC <coughs> Gamer, what were those sort of experiences like? Because that was over the course of about eight years or so, if I'm right, roughly. Yeah, that was really interesting. I used to that the first company, the the multimedia CD-ROM company that I worked at many years ago. I worked with a guy called Pete Draper. Um, he famously went on to write loads of uh, 3D Studio Max um, books on how to use 3D Studio Max. Um, and at the time, he was working for 3D World magazine as a freelancer. Um, and I used to use a bit of software called Rhino 3D, and which was a NURBS modeler, which got me into Maya. And they needed a Rhino 3D person on their staff to be able to write articles. And so I, I did that freelance. Um, and then from there, of course, I got picked up and PC format wanted to hire me to do some stuff and yeah I did some bits all over the place really so yeah it was fun uh, it's you know it, it kind of paid a few bills here and there in the, in the early days and is it is it good kind of jumping on the the opposite end of the well not necessarily the opposite but a different uh, side of the the industry there to be able to you're more reporting on things rather than necessarily creating and developing yeah it's good because I got free stuff that was always quite handy well that's always um, handy <laughs> um but yeah, no, it was it was interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I guess it's you know you you have to be critical in a in a different kind of way because um, you're critical of somebody else's creation, really, which is odd. Um, but I've since done in recent, more recent years, I've I've done work for government bodies in um, assessing uh, games applications for funding, uh, and that it's funny that the the writing that I did for the magazines years ago has really helped that because you know because it's, it's a similar kind of thing um, that you have to do for that. So it's it all comes around full circle, really. Um, when you say helped, do you mean as in helped to get you that opportunity in the first place, or helped with that critical eye that you were talking about? I helped with the critical eye more. Yeah, just that yeah. whole kind of being able to look at somebody else's work and break it down and, and understand the way to give feedback on that and the way to kind of assess it. Does does that perspective help uh, with your approach to development as well? Oh, absolutely! Kind of, it's amazing, uh, actually. Th- thinking through how the opposite end will sit there and break things down, as you said. Yeah, it does. I mean, even just like, uh, especially when you're you're doing assessments of stuff, you, you get to see what other people are making, and you know there are some amazing people out there doing some amazing things in amazing ways. And you know, I'm constantly learning all the time by people around me and the projects I see being made especially here in the arcade there are some amazing uh young people doing amazing things and old people too there's a few of us old older people here <laughs> um, i have done i have done a walkthrough on only, only on the one occasion um and I, it was also a saturday so it was a little bit quiet but there are some incredible people working in there so they're doing some really great work so yeah. i wholeheartedly agree with you oh it's amazing it's just yeah oozes i mean you've got the, the games coming out of this building you know we've had florence and games like that come out here and yeah amazing stuff um so you're obviously talking about the learning that goes with uh with all that that i guess is probably a good segue to link into the fact that for a period there you were doing some part-time lecturing yes and we are bouncing we are bouncing all across your career here we're not necessarily going in any sort of linear fashion but uh well that was the perfect transition so (laughs) so that was during the time that i was running fractions that era of me freelancing on racing games um, and uh, yeah, there was a university within an hour's drive from where I lived, and they were looking for somebody part time. And so I went and did some stuff for them for a, oh, was nearly two years, about a year and a half. Um, but that was really interesting because I, <laughs> I was at one point I was juggling a lot of work. Um, I had I, I was working for multiple studios while lecturing as well, and so I was racing up and down the country in, the, in my car going to all these different places and staying in hotels and yeah it was it was pretty full-on for a few years 
again, but maybe biting off a bit more than you could chew, that sort of idea again? Always. I think you're getting the idea of me now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, but I I totally appreciate that personally. My wife <laughs> keeps telling me to stop, take a breath every now and then, but I do appreciate the, the idea and the sentiment. It's hard work ends up paying off down the line. Yeah, it's only, it's only when you look back on all this stuff that you think, what was I thinking? That was crazy. But at the time, it just felt perfectly fine and natural. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's dozens and dozens of games uh, ne- with your name next to it, so I'd say that you've used that pro- time pretty wisely. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. And at the end of the day, it helps get you to where you are now. So, has there been anyone throughout the the journey, whether that was when you were growing up or now that you're actually in the industry, who's really been a an inspiration for you along the way, particular developers or people or anything like that? Or is it just those that you work alongside that you, you get your inspiration from? Um, it's hard to say, really. I struggled at the back end of my school and I struggled in the early days of university. Um, I didn't think I was going anywhere, to be honest. Um, I was, I didn't have any, I just did, yeah, I just, I, I didn't have any confidence. Um, and so there was people around that time, like my, my parents, for sure, were a big, were big around that to, um, but also you know I had friends that I made at university that kind of like, you know, I know got they were really great people to hang out with and, and move me along like you know, I've got a really good friend called Stuart Farrow, he works for um, he works for EA now funnily enough in the UK, um, and uh, he's he's been a great he's worked you know he's 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 been in and out of the games industry over the years but he's he's a terrific talent like in fact. He's the guy that got a first in engineering degree while also being the most fantastic artist you'll ever see. Um, he's one of those people. Um, but he's... You know, Multi-talented, oh. um, su- super humble, yeah. uh, almost annoyingly so, that, that sort of oh, person. Yeah, he's, but he's, he's, he's a wonderful <laughs> friend. He's been a great inspiration for me over the years. Um, uh, I've got to say, well, I, you know, the early days, uh, we go back to the ZX Spectrum and the coding, the basic programming. I used to do that with my mum. Like my mum used to be cooking dinner, oh, okay. and she we would copy out computer programs from computer magazines of the era, and she would come in and she would type the computer programs out with me, and we'd try them out in between cooking the dinner and looking after my little brother, and you know, like that was my mum, and my mum was sat there coding with me, like that's pretty immense. Like when I, <laughs> at the time it just was like, ah, oh, thanks mum, but you know, when you think back to it now, it's like that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, well, I'd imagine there was a little bit of motivation that came from that as well, because you've always got that person in your corner. Yeah, yeah, we were just like buddy-buddy. I mean, they bought me that computer because they thought, ah, oh, that will help him in school. And obviously it never did, because uh, you know, <laughs> there was never... Too distracted doing everything else with it. Well, that's right. But I think with the coding side of things and making actual games on, you know, that we could load off tape cassette together. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite a bonding experience, really. But yeah, look, everybody that I've worked with over the years, I, I get inspired by absolutely everybody. It's, yeah, I can't help but be inspired. Um, I like to surround myself with talented people. Um, I've always, I had, a, I had a boss once who said, always surround yourself with people that are better than you. And I've always done that. <laughs> so, uh, it's, you know, you can't be, I can't, every day I get amazed by something that somebody's doing because they're awesome. Well, as you've already said, uh, there's a lot of really talented people in the arcade there, so there would be plenty of sources for inspiration. Indeed, definitely, yeah. Yeah, loads and loads. Whether that is the likes of uh, the team at Mountains for, for Florence or Samurai Punk or anyone that's there, there's a lot of really talented people in that building, so you're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, long, you know, this place is great, and it's, um, you know, we, we were one of the first companies into the arcade, and... Uh, it's such a great venture. I'm so glad that it's kept going all these years. And so another perfect segue then, being one of the first, being the first uh, into the arcade, what was that like back then when that was being founded, I guess? Well, funnily enough, I wasn't here. So I, I disappeared back off to the UK for oh, yeah, a couple of, of years to have a baby. Um, and uh, my business partner at the time, um, he organised getting us into the arcade um, and so for the first year of Tin Man being in the arcade, I wasn't even here. Um, so that was a bit unusual. But um, it was nice to move back to Australia again and have a ready-made company ready to just to come straight into. Um, it took a little while to get used to that because I was obviously working from home in the UK during that period. So. 
So how, how does that kind of work, given that you are, yeah, remote at that particular point, and is it just the occasional uh, phone call, emails, Skype calls, whatever it happens to be, to just keep in touch and see everyone's tracking? Yeah, there was a lot of... Um because obviously the time zones with the UK sort of switch and move it. One minute it's nine hours difference and the next minute it's 11 hours difference. So uh, at one point it's better to meet a call early in the morning with them at night. And there's another time later in the year when it's better for me to call late at night. And so there was a lot of conversations where I'd be eating a bowl of cornflakes while watching people drink whiskey and then vice versa. Lots of times <laughs> where I'd be drinking whiskey and watching people, you know, bleary eyed drinking coffee. So... Um, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting situation. Might but it, stifle the effectiveness of some of those calls, I guess. <laughs> I made it more fun in many ways. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it was difficult. I'm not going to, you know, say it wasn't. It was really hard to, especially as I was managing a few projects, and uh, we had new staff, for example, and I didn't even know who they were. Um, <laughs> you know, so. That was tricky. And then a year later, you come waltzing in, and I, I do. Yeah. All these, all these new people looking. At, who's this? Who's this guy that just comes stomping into our office? That's right. That's right. No, now that we've good. seen enough of you from those from those uh, calls with whiskey and all that. Well, the thing is, they could probably go away and moan about me after the the, the sort of recording or something. So they couldn't now in the office. <laughs> <laughs> so as we begin to wind things up. Uh, what have been some of the more valuable lessons that you've kind of learned along the way? Has there been anything that's really resonated with you that you've picked up from along the journey? Uh, yeah, basically just um, just make your own luck. Like I've been lucky in a few instances. That we've, we've covered a couple of weird little coincidences that have happened, but you know, all that's been by my making in a weird kind of way. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had that lucky situation if I hadn't have put myself out there for other reasons earlier on. So. Uh, yeah, you just if you're if you're if you're looking to break into the industry, just just be a nice person and just go for everything and work hard and you know just be generally as awesome as you can be. Um, yeah, that's that's the best thing I can recommend. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean work hard and I think you give yourself every opportunity. So it may not always work out, but you give yourself every chance, and at least you don't look back on things and wonder what if. Yeah, and never compare yourself to anybody else. Your story is your story, and it's relative to who you are and what you need in your life. Um, and you know, it's 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 just important to be happy and enjoy what you're doing. Um, that's really important too. What's been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome? Has it been uh, kind of that that back and forth internationally, or a particular problem you had to overcome, or? Yeah, I've got two young kids. They're a challenge. Running a company with two young kids is difficult. Um, yep. uh, it's, uh, yeah, money. Money is a huge challenge constantly because video games don't make as much money as you think they do, especially the video games that we make. We're very niche. Yep. Um, you know, we're, we're not a AAA blockbuster. So my, finding money to pay people to make the stuff is always a challenge. In fact, that's, my, that's most of my job now is looking for money. <laughs> so uh, whether that's you know trying to find clever ways for us to sell our games better or whether it's looking pitching for funding or whether it's yeah. pitching for publisher support or other kinds of investment that that's my job I spend a lot of time talking money which is yeah odd so these days it has become more I guess admin based than actual development work for you personally Absolutely. I, in fact, I got very chuffed today. I had the delivery of a ultra widescreen monitor, uh, not for gaming. Uh, this is for Excel because it means I can see more Excel spreadsheets now than I ever <laughs> could before. Oh, I'm not joking. I was serious. It arrived today. I was su super over the moon because I can see my spreadsheets even better than I could. And that's how boring I've become. <laughs> no, I, I mean, again, you're talking to a teacher and specifically a math teacher. So if I can see more data on a screen, I am ecstatic. So you, you're talking my language there. Um, so this, this, that might just answer my next question. I was going to say, uh, any particular highlights along the way? But it sounds like your new ultra-widescreen monitor might be exactly that. That's it. It trumps everything. Have there been any particular highlights? <laughs> yeah. Have there been any particular highlights or memories along the way? The release of a particular game or... Or whatever oh, it is. Oh my god, there's been so many. Uh, I don't know. I, really. I suppose I, I've, I've probably got one idea, given that uh, you are working or have been working with a hero of yours. 
Yeah, I mean, that working with the Fight Fantasy stuff has been really a major highlight. Um, gosh, I tell you, every single time I release a game is a major highlight. It's lovely. Releasing something that you've that you've been involved in creatively is a wonderful thing. And watching and getting feedback from people when people email you or you see reviews that are positive um, about things, you know, people have invested their time to enjoy the, your creativity. That's like, that's just such a wonderful feeling. You can't beat it, really. Yeah, and I'd imagine the feedback is, yeah, it's certainly right up there because actually hearing from people and you can get kind of caught in a in a vacuum at times and you get so worked up by the day-to-day that you don't necessarily get opportunities to, to take that on board. And then when, you know, the game finally finally launches and the reviews or uh, tweets or whatever whatever they are come flooding in, I'd imagine that would be really satisfying. satisfying. It is. It is really nice. It's really, really good. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, it's, it's nice when people validate your decisions that you've been making because sometimes you have to make really tough design decisions, uh, whether they be for money or time, resources, or just quality. And, uh, you know, and some of those decisions aren't always really good decisions. And when people kind of respond in a positive way, that's really, really important. And I suppose being trapped in that vacuum at the time, it's hard to know whether you've actually made the right decision or not. You, there'd be a lot of doubt, I guess. Ah, oh, there is. I mean, you just got to draw on your experience. I've been I've been in enough games developments now where I I kind of I can sniff out where I, I like to think I can sniff out where we're going wrong or not um, on a on a broader high level. Um, yeah. Uh, and so. The, the last of the proper questions before we we kind of really wrap things up uh, what does the future hold from here? I assume uh, obviously Warhammer is going to be a fair part of that but where do you yep, see things definitely. heading from here? Uh, ooh, I can't really talk about that but uh, uh, actually decent stuff <laughs> stuff Ex- more stuff exciting, more. exciting stuff well we've been you know the last three games we've made have been kind of digital board games so I think you know the direction where we're heading a little bit. Um, that's that's fair enough. Yeah. So we're 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 testing the ground in a few different ways, and we'll see where it takes us next. Well, I'll be sure to watch that very closely then to see how things continue to develop. Uh, cool. Last proper question before we do some of the social the social bits and pieces, uh, and this is a question that's only been added to the bank in the last I don't know four to five episodes. So I don't know if you've caught any of them, but uh, maybe this will catch you off guard. If there was one game from all of the history of the the industry that you wish uh, that you'd like to have your name in the credits for, so you could be at least in part responsible for that game. You don't necessarily need to be the head of the studio or anything like that, but yeah. just to be credited for in some way. What would that game be? What game would that be? Um, that would probably be. This is a really boring answer. I'm very sorry. It would probably <laughs> be Football Manager. Oh, okay. Or championship manager, as I knew it way back before it was changed to football manager. No, no, I've, I mean, I've heard the likes of uh, Elder Scrolls, and I've heard Fallout, and those sort of things, and I'm start they're, like they're starting to get fairly repetitive. So, no, this is, that's not a boring answer whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> Good. What, what, what attracts you? Is it, is it the love of the game in your particular case? That yeah, I put uh, I put a lot of hours into football manager games over the years, and um, uh, I just I just love them, I, and I would love to, I would I've always joked that I would love to make my own. Um, and I, you know what? I probably will one day. But um, yeah, it's just I, yeah. I don't know. The, the, I just I, I don't know. I can't explain it really. It's it's a weird anomaly because it's just odd. I just would. <laughs> well, it does it does fly in the face of your other works. But at the same time, if the passion's there, why not? Exactly. I mean, I've put so many hours into these things. Um, I just I, I love the politics of football. Um, I actually prefer the politics of of sport more than I actually do the sports themselves. Um, oh, okay. So, so the thought of building a football team and, and keeping it—it's like running a games company. You're just running a football team. It's the—it's the same. It ticks the same boxes in my brain. It's like this weird kind of little managing people and stuff and trying to get the best results. Like people, resources, yeah, all that sort of it's, thing. It's that, and I love all that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to—I'll have to re- uh, visit those games and look at them through that lens, and maybe that'll—I mean, I. I'm, I'm not a soccer guy myself or a football person myself, so um, that's probably why I've never really given them the time myself. But 
maybe I'll visit with that sort of perspective and see if that adjusts anything for me. Yeah, see how you go. Don't get sucked so, in though. They get very addictive. I'll keep that in mind then. <laughs> so Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And just as we wrap things up, if anyone, the listeners, uh, wish to learn anything more about you, the games you've been working on, uh, where would they be best to go? Uh, so timmangames.com.au is our little blog that we've been running for some years. We don't update it as much as we should. Um, uh, Warhammer Underworlds Online is our new thing. So that's warhammerunderworlds-online.com. Uh, you can wishlist that on Steam. We love wishlists on Steam. Please wishlist that game. Um, if you want to find out a bit about me, uh, I guess my you can follow me through to my LinkedIn. I've got a list of all my games in there. It's pretty, you've probably seen it. Um, yeah, so that's probably it, really. Yeah, if, if, you, if you visit uh, Neil's LinkedIn page, you'll start to get a bit of insight as to how I put this episode together. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, and then you're obviously, on, you're obviously on Twitter as well, if anyone wanted to reach out. Yeah, I'm Rennie Hammer on Twitter. Um, I also part manage the Tin Man Games Twitter account as well. Um, so, yeah, so you can find me on there. So for more frequent updates, those might be a good place for you, the listener, to go to. Yes. Neil... It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, on the show today. We were seriously having, having some doubts beforehand about the ability for the connection to hold while we were doing this, but it's worked out a treat. Not a single hitch along the way that I'm aware of. So that's, that's uh, yeah. a bit of a relief. Hopefully that comes good. Yeah. Touch, <laughs> touch wood that it doesn't die on us in the next 30 seconds to a minute. But like I said, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your story today. It's been really, really interesting. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And listeners, as always, thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter where you can help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Neil's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.